Good morning, church. Happy New Year. Good to see everyone here today. Uh, there is a sermon outline in your order of services. Let me actually encourage you to bring that out. Uh, that will be actually helpful for you uh, to follow along. Uh, let me actually pray for us as we look at a couple of passages this morning, certainly as we start the year together. Gracious God, we do want to thank you, and we want to pray the words of Psalm 1 as we start the year. We want to pray and ask that we might be like trees planted beside streams of living water, so that as we draw from your word, as we start the year together, as we start a new year, we pray that we might find ourselves, uh, our needs, our every need, met in the sufficiency of the gospel, in knowing who you are and what you have done as Father, Son, and Spirit, so that in every season that comes into our lives this year, we might flourish. And so we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, look, this year, we're not just starting the year together as a church community. It's the first time we've actually done this. Uh, we're also starting uh, a nine-week summer series that's not our usual approach to preaching. So I think, I suspect, over the next uh, eight, nine weeks, some of you are going to find this a bit strange, because normally we land in one passage, and then we work through it. Okay, that's our normal approach to preaching here at Grace Point. But what we're going to do instead is we're going to work through the Apostles' Creed. And we're going to work through the Apostles' Creed line by line over the next nine weeks. You know, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth this week. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, next Sunday. Uh, and it's a series that's different because we're going to be thinking through the Bible's teaching on a topic, uh, a theme, a subject, which means that we're not just looking at one passage. We're going to look at a few passages across the Scriptures, across the Bible, right? So we'll do that for nine weeks, uh, in the Apostles' Creed, and then we move on to the book of Romans. Uh, and I suspect when we get to Romans, we'll be much, much more familiar with that. Now, the first thing I want to say is that the Apostles' Creed is not the Bible. So that's the first thing I want to say to you. Uh, the Apostles' Creed uh, is not Scripture. Uh, it wasn't written by the Apostles, as some people believe. It's not the Word of God. But it is a summary of the foundational teachings of the Bible. Uh, it's a summary of the teachings of the Bible as taught by the apostles, the first disciples of Jesus. Uh, it's a summary of what Christians have believed and affirmed uh, and confessed and professed and trusted in. Uh, it's a summary of foundational truths that Christians have actually put their hope in for the last 1,800 years. The earliest forms of the creed uh, go back to 215 uh, AD, which means that every time you and I, we recite the creed, you might not realize this, but we are actually joining the chorus of God's people who for the last 1,800 years have affirmed these truths. It's been part of the life of the church, the Christian church, for 1,800 years. In fact, the Apostles' Creed was actually part of the rite of baptism uh, for new believers. So if you were a new believer and you were baptized as an adult, you learned the creed. Uh, it was basically the seven basic Bible studies of the early church, knowing what you believe. Uh, so we stand in a long, 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 long line uh, of believers who have affirmed these truths every time we recite the creed. So why do we recite the creed? Why do we teach the Apostles' Creed? Why should we know the Apostles' Creed? Well, some things are worth repeating because they are worth remembering, right? Some things are worth repeating because they are worth remembering. Uh, we do it as a reminder of the truths that we believe as God's people, truths that are supposed to encourage and strengthen our faith, uh, truths that are meant to excite us why? Because they're meant to be life-changing truths. 
Uh, they're meant to be life-giving truths, truths that are meant to give us confidence uh, and joy in our faith, truths that should guide and protect us from falsehood. You know, knowing the creed is meant to protect us from false teaching so we can discern truth, truths that should give us hope in life, truths that are meant to be a foundation that we anchor in when life is uncertain, truths that are meant to actually uh, strengthen us both in life and in death. In other words, the Apostles' Creed isn't meant to be, as you heard Eliot say, cold doctrine. I know some of us think of the creeds that way. Uh, The purpose of the creeds, uh, or the historical creeds of the church, they are meant to fire your heart by deepening your mind. Uh, They're actually meant to fire your heart by actually fueling your mind with truth. Uh, Remember we say it here often at Grace Point, you've heard uh, Pastor Elliot say this, you cannot love God deeply if you do not know God deeply. And that's so, so true, isn't it? The more you know of God, the more you love Him deeply. That's why the creeds have been so important in the life of the church for 1,800 years. And maybe, just maybe, we live in a generation where our Christian faith is so fragile, where our Christian faith is so easily threatened. Maybe the reason why our experience of God is lacking, or, or, or maybe the reason why we find our Christian faith so irrelevant, maybe the reason why the vast majority of Christians who've grown up in the church live no different, no difference to the unbelieving world around them. As time goes by, you find that they live no different to the world around them. Maybe, just maybe, the reason is because their knowledge of God is shallow and superficial. That's certainly possible. Uh, R.C. Sproul writes, A flea could wade in the knowledge of God in the mind of the average Christian. Did you hear that? A flea could wade in the knowledge of God in the mind of the average Christian. It's not meant to be a compliment to us this morning. He's actually saying our knowledge of God is so shallow A flea could wade in it, not even swim in it, wade in it because it's a baby pool for a flea. I hope we can change that. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the opening line of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Uh, Just to give you a quick overview, the creed has four parts, so you'll see it there in your outlines. Four parts of the creed uh, as we kick off. Uh, You'll be doing uh, a more detailed study of the creed in your Bible study groups as well, in your community groups that start in February. Uh, But here are the four main parts of the creed, what we believe about God the Father, what we believe about God the Son, what we believe about God the Spirit, and what we believe about the Church. You can more or less break it down under those four headings. And I do want to encourage you over the next few weeks to memorize the creed. It will be really helpful for your Christian life, right? Uh, But today we're going to start at that first line. So in your outlines, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. Notice that the Apostles' Creed opens with the words, I believe. Now, what do you mean, or what do we mean when we say, I believe? The first thing I want to say to you is, I believe is not a religious thing, because the need to believe is something, in something, or in someone, uh, is at the heart of what it means to be human. You cannot be a human being and live in disbelief, as culture would have you believe. Uh, To live in unbelief is to be unhinged and unanchored. Because what we believe is what gives us a framework in life to live by, right? To, to relate to others, to make choices. It gives us a reason to get up in the morning. Uh, the irony is that our culture embraces and applauds and even celebrates disbelief in anything. 
Yet, if you think with me for a moment, embracing a posture of suspicion and disbelief is a belief, isn't it? It's to live affirming that I believe in nothing, which is a self-refuting nonsense statement if you think about it. Uh, To say I don't believe in anything is a belief. Uh, Everyone is actually a believer. So whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, a secular person or a religious person, everyone believes in something or someone, which means that everyone has a creed they live by. Some people's creeds are more articulated than others. Other people just live by a creed that they've never really thought about. They live by a creed that they're building their lives on, that gives them hope, that makes them care about certain things, that gives them a reason to get up out of bed in the morning, uh, a creed that, or beliefs that comfort them and give them hope, that's directing and shaping and guiding them, that tells them what is valuable and what's not valuable in life. You wake up and you do the things you do because you believe in something or someone. So there's actually no one who lives in disbelief. Now, we know that historically as well because whole nations, haven't they, have committed themselves to certain beliefs or creeds. Uh, Marx and Engels' Communist Manifesto, Mao's Little Red Book. Uh, So secular or religious, everyone is a believer in something or someone. So everyone in this room has a creed they live by. So what do we mean when we say, I believe? Uh, Pastor and writer Simon Manchester, uh, he helpfully puts it like this, just to help us understand. To say I believe is to say you are either attached or detached from the object of your belief. So think of belief in this way. When someone says I believe, they're either attached or they're detached to the object of their belief. Because anyone can say I believe. Anyone can sing it as we did before. But it raises the question, doesn't it? What kind of believing are we talking about? Uh, Here at Grace Point, we support the work of compassion, right? We freeing children from poverty. But, you know, you could say you believe in the work of compassion, but you're not attached to the work of compassion, are you? Uh, You know about compassion, you have knowledge about compassion, uh, you're mentally aware of the good work they do, you could even have supported it in the past, you're not doing it now, maybe in the future you will support the work. But right now, you can either be attached to the work of compassion or detached when you say, I believe in the work of compassion. And so there's this difference, isn't there, in what many people believe. Because you can have a belief that's either attached or actually detached. Uh, An attached relationship where you have a personal relationship of involvement and support and trust. Or you can have a belief that's detached. You just know about it. And so you know there are actually two kinds of believing. Uh, And believing here, where we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, is more than just knowledge about something. It's not just intellectual assent to the truth. It is to bind yourselves to these truths. It is to attach yourselves to these truths. It is to put your trust in these truths. It is to express your confidence in these truths. It is to actually stake your life on these truths. It is to anchor in them. That's what it means when we say, I believe. So what do we believe? Have a look with me at that line, we believe in God. That seems kind of straightforward. Of course, we believe in God, right? It's obvious. You can't be a Christian and not believe in God. But I want to say two things here. First thing I want to say, it's, it is a big thing right now in culture and society to say, I believe in God, isn't it? Uh, when was the last time you told someone in your workplace or your school uh, or your university or your place of study that you believed in God? When was the last time you actually did that? On the one hand, it's really a big statement today to say, I believe in God, especially when the 
cultural air we breathe, in, certainly in the public sphere, uh, denies the belief in God. Uh, in the public sphere, uh, you know, when people say they believe in God, they're often laughed at and they're ridiculed and they're mocked. Uh, and you often hear it said, only silly, unscientific, irrational, mindless, gullible people believe in God. I put all the words down there because that's the kind of stuff we hear. But here's the good news no one wants you to know, because here's the flip side. Did you know that 55% of Australians believe in God? That's a big number, you know. 55% of Australians believe in God, or in some higher power that's there, but unknowable. That means, right now, that means 55% of the Australian population must be stupid, unscientific, irrational, mindless, gullible people. Of course not. That can't be true, can it? And I know that, you know, there are some people who are thinking, but you, you know, we saw the latest census, didn't we? The latest census actually told us that 39% of the nation ticked the non-religious box. They ticked, I'm non-religious. And therefore, the, the thinking is, atheism, disbelief in God must be on the rise. You think so, but not really. If you think with me for a moment, when people tick the non-religious box, it's basically saying, non-religious affiliation is on the rise. People are less attached to traditional, institutionalized religion. It doesn't mean people have stopped believing in God. It doesn't mean that people are not interested in spiritual things. And so I want to say to you, you know, surely out of the 55% of Australians who believe in God as some high power, or maybe even the 1.8 million, 1.8 million people who attend church on Sunday each week who believe in God, Surely, out of all those people, there must be. They can't all be stupid, unscientific, irrational, mindless, gullible people because they believe in God. And so, I do want you to know that there are more people who believe in God or some higher power than is publicly portrayed. Now, that's an aside to give you confidence, especially when you engage in the public sphere in your schools, your universities, your workplaces. But here's the second thing. When we say in the creed, I believe in God, we're not saying we believe in any God as if there were a selection of gods to pick from, right? We don't believe in Allah. We don't believe in Krishna. We don't even believe in the God of the scientists. God is impersonal but intelligent designer. We don't believe in an impersonal higher power. We don't believe in Aristotle's God, the great divine mind. We don't believe in Plato's God, the ideal form of the good. Because there are lots of people who can actually say with us, I believe in God. Because the word God is so abstract, isn't it? It's so conceptual. You know, it, it's, it's a vacuous word. It's often shaped by our religious worldview. Even secular people have a view of God. Uh, it's true today, and it was true in the world of the New Testament. Uh, there were many views of God. Some of you are familiar with Acts chapter 17, right? The Apostle Paul, he comes to the great city of Athens, religious city. Uh, there's an altar or place of worship on every street corner to different gods. And the two major groups are debating the Apostle Paul, the Epicureans and the Stoics, Acts 17, verse 18. And the Epicurean Stoics, they both had their own views of God. The God of the Epicurean was distant, impersonal, disinterested. He creates and then he leaves us to our own devices. The God of the Stoics is that God is all in all, you know, like um, Star Wars, the Force. It's all in all. And Paul says... I can see that all of you are religious because all of you believe in God, right? So you are religious. Your city is filled with altars to many gods. And then he says, you even have an altar to an unknown God. 
You want to cover all your bases, don't you? And Paul begins to fill in the blanks for them. He makes the unknown God known to them. Now, I want to say to you, this is what the creed does. Because notice the creed reads, I believe in God, the Father. You see there? That is uniquely Christian. I believe in God, the Father. Uh, It's not good enough to say, I believe in God. In fact, there's nothing Christian. In fact, there's nothing even biblical about that statement, I believe in God. Because it doesn't say anything about the God you believe in. Notice how the creed works. I believe in God the Father, and notice the first word ascribed to God is Father. I believe in God the Father. You know, if someone actually asks you, what do you believe about God? And you were to describe God, what's the first thing that would come to your mind? I bet you it wouldn't be Father, would it? I believe in God the Creator. I believe in God the All-Powerful. I believe in God the Judge. I believe in God the All-Knowing. And so when you read the opening lines of the creed, it should really blow your mind. I believe in God, the Father. In fact, that's how God's relationship to His Old Testament people, that's how it's described. It's not described in abstract, impersonal, distant terms. It's not a cold concept. When God describes His relationship to Israel, He describes Israel as His firstborn son. God is father to his people, right? Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, Pharaoh, let my son go so he may worship me. It's a fatherly relationship. That's how God describes his relationship to his Old Testament people. But the primary reason, the main reason why the creed reads, I believe in God, the Father, is because that's how God has actually chosen to reveal Himself in Jesus, His Son. We believe in God the Father because of the work of the Son. That's worth writing down. That that could be new for some of you today. We believe not just in any God. We believe in God the Father because of the work of the Son. The uniqueness of the Christian view of God, God as Father, is grounded in what God has revealed to us in Jesus, His Son. You know, if the creeds just said, I believe in God, anyone who believed in God could affirm that. The creed says, I believe in God the Father because of the Son He sends in the world, and the Son reveals Him as Father. God is actually a Father who sends His Son in the world so that we might know Him as Father, so that we might be brought into the family, so that we might be adopted as sons and daughters. And that's why we read the opening verses of John chapter 1. So if you look at John chapter 1, Jesus, verse 12, he comes as light of the world. And then notice it says, to all who receive Jesus. What happens when you receive Jesus? What happens to those who believe in his name, who trust his name? He gave the right to become children of God. God becomes their father when they receive the son. God receives, God becomes their father when they receive the son. And then verse 14, the son comes from the father. The Son was sent by the Father into the world. Then verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself God, and is closest, in closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. Made who known? God the Father known. Notice how God is described. He's described as the Father of the Son He sends into the world. And God the Father sends His Son into the world 
to make it possible for those who trust the Son to know and have God as their Father. We come to know God as our Father because of the saving work of the Son. And we become His children as we trust in the saving work of the Son. And that's why that famous passage, right, John chapter 14, verse 6, you know, we, we memorize that. Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. But notice He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. We meet God personally as Father when we come to Jesus the Son. Only when you come to know Jesus, you discover who God really is, which is why the opening line of the creed is so uniquely Christian. I believe in God the Father because that is uniquely Christian. You come to know God as Father through the Son, It's your trust in Jesus' saving work that opens the door for you to be adopted as a son or daughter in the family. And so you've got to realize it's not just forgiveness God offers, right? He he also makes you his daughter and his son. He becomes your father. Coming to personally know God for the Christian, uh, when a Christian comes to know God, it's not a cold, distant, abstract, theoretical concept. Yes, I believe God is the maker. I believe He's the judge. He's the ruler. But God has actually come to meet you in Jesus, firstly and foremost, as Father. Did you know that? God actually becomes your Father through the work of the Son. Anyone can say, I believe in God. But only the Christian is able to say, I believe in God the Father because I've come to know Him in His Son. And that actually tells us that God is not distant. God is not unknowable or uncaring or disinterested. The fact that the Father sends His Son into the world to die for me tells me that God actually loves me. The Apostle John writes 1 John 3, 1, See what great love the Father has poured out, lavished onto me, that we should be called children of God. You see, most of us in this room, I would say the majority, we see our relationship with God only in judicial terms, don't we? We're guilty before God because God is our judge. And then Jesus, He comes to pay the penalty for our sin. And God the judge now declares us in a right relationship with Him. Now, I do want to say to you, Jesus does that. The Son actually dies to pay the penalty for your sin. But you know, the Son also came to reveal to you the loving heart of the Father, to bring you into the loving arms of God the Father, to adopt you, to give you a loving fatherly relationship with God. A lot of us have never realized that. Uh, J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, writes, Adoption. Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers, even higher than justification. In justification, God gives us the righteousness of Jesus. He declares us right. But adoption makes us family members. It makes available to us all the family benefits. God becomes our Father. Let me read to you a portion from Packer on this. He says, Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law where we view God as judge. In justification, God declares uh, of the penitent believer that they are not and never will be liable to the death that they sin deserve because of Jesus. 
He's their substitute and sacrifice. He's tasted death for them on the cross. This free gift of acquittal and peace is wonderful enough. But justification does not itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. You could have the reality of justification in your life without any close relationship with God resulting. Do you know that? Contrast this, he says, with adoption. Adoption is a family idea, conceived in terms of love, where we view God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into the family. He establishes us as His children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. And then he says, to be right with God is a great thing. It's true, isn't it? To be right with God is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by the Father is even greater. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is far greater. Great thing to be right with God, isn't it? But there's something even greater. To know God as your Father. That's what it means to say, I believe in God the Father. Some of you are parents in this room. Can I say to you, parents... Don't just teach your children about God. Teach them about God the Father. Teach them to relate to God the Father. Teach them to speak to God as their Father. Speak to them about God the Father who loves them. When they pray, teach them to pray not just to God, but to God their Father in heaven who loves them. You know, when the kids were really, really small, and I don't think they remember it now because they're young adults now, but I would always say to them, especially when they went to school, I always said to them, I can't always be there for you. I can't always be there for you, but God is a Father who will always be there for you. He will always love you more than I ever will because of Jesus, and He will always be there for you because I will never always be able to be there for you. I know that in this room, many of you are able to say, I believe in God. But do you know God as the Father who has come to you in Jesus the Son? Do you relate to God as Father who has saved you in Jesus the Son? Do you trust God as the Father who has poured out His great love for you in Jesus the Son? You know, as an aside, can I also say that when you talk about your faith, because as many of you do when you talk about your faith, and someone actually says to you, you know, do you actually believe anything, especially when they find out you go to church on Sunday, uh, or do you believe in God? It's, it's not really good enough to say, I believe in God. It's, in fact, it's not very useful when you tell people you believe in God, right? Because it doesn't say anything about the God you believe in. A better response is to say, yes, I actually believe in God, the Father. Your conversation will go down a very, very different path, right? It'll take the conversation down a very different path, won't it? It'll open the door for you to explain why you believe in God, the Father, why you believe God is your Father, God has come in Jesus to open the way for us to know Him as Father, not this distant, disinterested, abstract concept. God has revealed Himself in His Son so that I might be brought into a fatherly relationship with God. I can have a personal relationship with God. I believe in God the Father because I've come to know Him in His Son, Jesus. But notice what else the creed says. Have a look with me. What's the next word? I believe in God the Father Almighty. God isn't just a Father who loves you, not just committed to you. Now, if you were to describe uh, God, what's the very next word you would choose? Right? What attribute of God would you choose? I believe in God the Father merciful. I believe in God the Father 
just. I believe in God the Father, wise. I mean, there's so many attributes of God you could put down, right? Right, if you were to write a creed. But there's actually one that really stands out in the Bible. And that's the rule of God. The absolute rule of God overall. The kingship of God overall. That is, He is Almighty. Now, why is that significant? Because the word Almighty says there is nothing in all of creation outside of His rule or control. God is not just a Father who loves you. He's also a Father who holds your life and the very circumstances of your life in His hands, in absolute control. His rule is extensive. He can act. He can save. God is not just Father. He is Father Almighty. Everything is under His absolute control and rule. That's what we read, right, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22 to verse 25. We read, He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its people within are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. In other words, they are nothing but pawns in His hands. He controls all things. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, No sooner do they take root in the ground, he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Does God have an equal? Absolutely not. He has no equal. There is nothing outside his rule, his control. God alone is almighty. And so this is what's happening, right? In the God who is Father Almighty, two things are, going to come, are coming together. don't know whether you can see it. God's love and God's rule come together. God's commitment to you and God's power for you come together. Uh, if God was just a loving Father but wasn't in control of what's happening in our lives, then we would have no hope or assurance, would we? But, but if God is almighty, but He doesn't love us, then we have no hope or assurance either, do we? God is not like, I, I say this all the time, God is not a loving, powerless, grandfather-like figure. But God is neither like a Veda-like, powerful figure who is absent of love. God is Father Almighty. And the creed brings together God the Father Almighty. His love and power, His complete care and control, His all-encompassing goodness and greatness. And we see that ultimately. We see God's love and His power for us ultimately. We see it in His Son. The son who died for us in love and who rose for us over the, over the dead, right, over death in power, over our ultimate enemy, our ultimate suffering, there is God's ultimate display of love and power for us, his commitment to us and his control over all the circumstances of our lives. So knowing God as Father Almighty should actually fill you with confidence, especially as we meet the new year. Even with all the uncertainties of the new year, it should fill us with confidence, with hope, with assurance, with comfort, whatever our circumstances. Because God is not distant. God is not disinterested in you. God is not powerless. To say, I believe in God the Father Almighty is to say, I trust in His absolute love for me as my Father, and I trust in His absolute control in my life because He is in control as the Almighty. I trust in the Father Almighty because of His Son, Jesus. That's what it means. I suspect in a room like this, most of us believe in the Father's love. 
I suspect that's how you, you became a Christian, right? You heard of the love of God in the Lord Jesus. You heard the gospel, the great love of the Son who died for you. And you were convinced of God's love for you. But here's the question I want to ask this morning. How many of you actually believe in the Father's control over all that's happening in your life? How many of you actually believe in the Father's absolute control over everything that's happening in your life? That He's got you. That you're safe in His hands. He's got your back despite the circumstances, despite the loss, despite the suffering. I'm not asking you whether you trust God as the Father Almighty in His love for you. I'm asking you if you trust God as the Father Almighty in His absolute love and absolute control in your life, in your children's lives. But the first line of the Apostles' Creed doesn't end there because God's fatherly love and powerful rule is also expressed in who He is, notice, as the Creator of heaven and earth. And so notice the first line of the Creed, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, and then it says, maker or creator of heaven and earth. See there? Uh, The creator tells us that there is nothing that does not owe its existence to him. He's creator and we are creature. He stands above and before everything as its creator. Big statement, you know, because the creed doesn't just affirm that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, but that we believe in God, the creator of the universe and the world and all that's in it. And again, in a world that has done everything to remove God from the public discourse, to actually say today you believe in God as creator of the universe is actually quite radical, isn't it? You, know, you hear it and people say, only scientific, you know, unscientific, irrational people believe God created the universe. Maybe you felt that pressure, right? Uh, at school, as a school teacher, right? teaching biology. Maybe you feel it uh, at university when you go to, you know, bio classes. I want to say to you, there's only three possibilities in explaining the universe as we know it. And I've summarized it there in your outlines as well. And something you could use, by the way, in your apologetics this year. Three possibilities in explaining the existence of the universe. Right, option one, the universe has always existed. Right? Always been there. It has no beginning. It's eternal. Option two, the universe just came into being spontaneously. It's self-generated in itself from nothing. In other words, the universe made itself. Or option three, the universe was created by someone. Now, uh, really briefly, the teaching of the Bible and science actually says the universe is not eternal. It has a beginning, a start. Okay? Well, so the Bible and science agree on that one. Uh, the teaching of the Bible and common sense says the universe didn't just self-generate itself. That's common sense, right? You, you cannot create yourself it's not like you willed yourself into being. Um, if you don't exist, how do you self-generate yourself into existence? And I do know there are people who actually believe in option two. Uh, the universe spontaneously created itself out of nothing. In fact, that's a really, really popular view today. Um, that's a view physicist Stephen Hawking held. Uh, this is what he writes. Listen very carefully. He says, because there is a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. You hear that? Because there's a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Now think about that statement very carefully, explaining the creation of the universe. Because there's a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Now hang on, Dr. Hawking, that's a bit illogical, isn't it? You're saying the universe is created from nothing, but you're also saying it's created from something, gravity. 
And so mathematician John Lennox uh, goes on to say, and he explains it this way in response to Dr. Hawking. He says, To say a law of gravity presumes a lawmaker. In fact, like any law of nature, it cannot explain how something, it can only explain how something works. It cannot tell you how it came into being. And it's true, isn't it? The laws of physics can only tell you how it works. It doesn't tell you how something came into being. And the example he uses is this. Let's say, you know, we all turn up at Christ College today, uh, and in the middle of Christ College was a jet engine, okay? And you find a jet engine. And obviously, we've got a lot of physicists in this room, right? A lot of engineering guys. And all the engineering guys, they gather around the jet engine, and they all start telling you how the jet engine works because they're all good at physics. Well, that's all the law of physics can do. It can tell you how it works. But there'll be no one who can actually tell you how the jet engine came into being. It's actually common sense and self-evident that the laws of physics could not have created the jet engine on its own. In fact, it takes wild imagination and incredible blind faith or huge leaps of faith to actually come to the conclusion that the universe created itself out of nothing or that the universe came into being by the laws of gravity. So which is more probable? The world we live in spontaneously came into being by itself? Or life as we know it was created by a creator? Here's another way of putting it. Which takes more faith to believe? Which takes more faith to believe? That the universe spontaneously came into being or that it was created by a creator? And so it's fair to assume that, is that, it's fair to assume that if there's design in the world, there must be a designer. It's fair to assume that if there's laws of nature, there must be a lawmaker. It's fair to assume that if there's beauty in the world, there is an artist. It's fair to assume that if there's love, there must be a great lover. And so the creed actually affirms God the Father Almighty is creator of the world. It's actually not unreasonable to actually believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, because it's actually also the teaching of the Bible. Uh, notice we read Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25 and 26. I'm going to read that for us. God says, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. God knows the stars by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them in the starry host is missing. And then he says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, not the universe. The Lord is the everlasting God. The Lord is eternal, the creator of the ends of the earth. The universe has a beginning. God does not. God alone is everlasting or eternal, which is why, you know, when people ask the question, some of you have asked it before, and I'm sure you've heard it asked of you. People ask the question, you know, who made God? Ever get that question thrown at you? Who made God? Well, the question, who made God, is a question that put, puts God in the wrong category. It assumes that God is actually a created being, that God is actually within the system, that God is within the universe. No, God stands above, before, and outside the creation as its creator. He's outside the creation. Who made God? Well, no one made God. If someone made God, whoever made God would be God, and God wouldn't be God, because he would be a creature finite, like everything else in creation. The Lord is the everlasting God. God alone is eternal, the creator of the ends of the earth. We sung that, our Father everlasting, the all-creating one. In fact, the Bible teaches that before God, there was nothing. That's why the opening lines of the 
book of Genesis read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, I love it because author Jerry Bridges in his book, Trusting God, puts it like this. Let me read this portion for you. Nothing exists of its own inherent power or being. Nothing in creation stands or acts independently of the Lord's will. The laws of nature are nothing more than the physical expression of the steady will of the Son. The laws of gravity operates with unceasing certainty because Christ continually wills it to operate. The Bible teaches that God sustains us. He gives us our life, our breath, and everything else. He supplies our food. Our times are in His hands. Every breath we breathe is a gift of God. Every bite of food we eat is a given to us from Him. Every day we live is determined by Him. He has not left us to our own devices or the whims of nature or the malevolent acts of other people. No, He constantly sustains, provides, cares for us every waking moment of our lives. Do you believe that? That should fill us with wonder and awe and humility. Most of us have such a small view of God because we have never thought deeply about what it means for God to be creator of heaven and earth. We should be moved to humility, knowing we are and will always be dependent creatures. We cannot live and we cannot exist without the will of the creator. But it should also increase our confidence and our assurance because the creator is your father almighty. We're safe in his hands in the hands of the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. The only right response is actually praise and worship. And that's why, you know, in the final scene before the throne in Revelation 4, verse 11, before the throne of God Almighty, the eternal God, we read that the 24 elders, the living creatures, they fall before the throne on their faces. They bring their treasures, their crowns, and they lay it before Him, and they say, You are worthy. You are worthy, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. For you created all things, and by your will they were created, and by your will they have their being. Did you hear that? You created all things, and by your will they created, and by your will they have their being. Are you moved to praise and worship when you think of God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? It should Are you moved to praise and worship as you affirm the first line of the creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. It should. Let me bring things to a close by coming back to some questions I've raised for us. Here's the first one. Is your believing in God, the Father Almighty, attached or detached? Good question to ask, isn't it? Is your believing in God, the Father Almighty, attached or detached? Do you you personally know Him or you just know about Him? And that's a really, really important distinction because only those who are His children know Him as their Father. Only those who have come to know and trust the Son know Him as their Father. And maybe, just maybe, there's some of you in this room today who don't know God as Father Almighty. God for you has always been distant and impersonal. He's powerful, yes, but He's distant, impersonal. You believe in God, but you don't think He can be known. He's not Father Almighty to you. Can I say to you, You can know God personally as your Father Almighty by coming to His Son, by trusting in His Son. Or maybe just maybe um, 
you're someone still trying to work out who God is. You aren't sure whether He can be known or whether you can know Him. Can I say to you, He can be known. Start with Jesus, His Son. And, and if that's you, here at Grace Mall, we're there to help you do that. That's why Jesus came to reveal God the Father Almighty and to bring you to God the Father Almighty. But then I also suspect there are some of you in this room, you've been at church a very, very long time. Intellectually, you know God. But you actually don't feel you have a personal relationship with God. Or maybe you don't feel the love of God anymore. Maybe you feel that your relationship with God is cold, or maybe you feel that God is impersonal. And I want to say that maybe that's the case because in your Christian life, you've only ever related to God as judge and never as your Father Almighty. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is far greater. And so I do want to encourage you as you start the year to start seeing and relating to God as Father Almighty. A father who loves you and a father who's got you safe in his hands. And, as, and, and you start getting to know God, the Father Almighty, by coming to experience and know his personal love for you in his son. By coming to experience God's power for you in his son. Which is why even in prayer, what did Jesus teach us to pray? Not pray God our Father. He, he doesn't say pray God in heaven. He says, he says pray our Father in heaven, learn to start speaking of God as your Father Almighty. Do you know God as the Father who loves you and has come to save you and His Son? Do you trust God as the Father Almighty in His absolute love and control in your life? Are you moved to praise and worship knowing God as the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? It should. Amen.